0: Welcome back to The Thunderstock Show, a collection of valuable brainstorms to enhance your life, liberty, and pursuit of property. We have a guest today, a special guest that I believe the Founding Fathers would approve of. Nate Murr, thanks so much for coming on. It's
1: good to be here, Ross. Thanks for having me.
0: I will say, I think we still have plenty left in the tank to talk about, but we were talking off mic for roughly three and a half hours. So you guys are going to get the best of the conversation today. For whomever is listening, brief intro on Nate, if, I'm, if I can so give it. I met Nate about a year ago through a mutual friend and had a very interesting background and stage in his entrepreneurial journey. Uh, I'm not going to go through you know your entire chronology, but Nate is a Lancaster County resident, traveled much of the world, and a now uh, solopreneur entrepreneur. So, how's it going, man? Obviously, I know for the last three and a half hours, but (laughs) for those that don't know you, can you tell a little bit about the new Frontier, Frontier Resolve, your new company?
1: Yeah. So, after uh, many years of working for other people and trying to push the rock in the direction I wanted to go in for them, uh, I, I wised up to the supreme fact that it's best to be sole proprietor of your business and uh it's been really weird for me cuz uh you know i'm am I'm just getting the new business off the ground right now and i'm really excited about it I'm really stoked but it's also kind of a different animal than in the past uh just because it's 100% on my shoulders so yeah it's it's definitely been interesting that way but it's funny cuz like all these other people that i know that are successful in business and own their own companies and real eclectic group of people it's like they all laugh they all laugh about it like oh it's about time you wised up or yeah man that's that's where it's at uh be your own boss sole proprietorship partners suck everybody's like anti-partner yeah but it, it's like uh it's been weird because it's like people are like it's like a rite of passage to be you know like kind of like ground down to the point where you say, I, I got to do this on my own.
0: It's funny that
1: statistically
0: there's a higher likelihood of divorcing a business partner than there is your spouse. And I know in America today, it's like a 50% chance of going through a marital divorce, but it's like a 75% chance of going through a business partner divorce.
1: I I can believe it. So it's, I mean, it's, it's like this, like uh, you're in a marriage, you know, man and woman, you know, woman, man, whatever. But, it's like the bond you have with that person is like romantic love and emotional love and that connection. And you know, one day your wife goes to the gym and falls in love with a personal trainer and it's game over for you. Right. Yeah. But it's like in business, it's your complete world. I mean, and it's a world that's generally, you know, regarded as free of emotion. It's not satisfying romantically or emotionally. I mean, some people's jobs maybe, but, you know, it's how you feed your children, it's how you pay your mortgage, it's how you, you you provide for yourself. So that's a lot of trust to put in somebody else because if if they ruin that for you, what do you do? So I, I it it doesn't surprise me.
0: One quote I remember talking with you about months ago was that you said you'd rather be back in a war zone because you are what, five time combat vet?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> are, we, are we counting like time shot at in the same week or <laughs> deployments? Deployments. I guess no. I went to Iraq three times. And I, three I went, times. I went to Africa twice, and uh,
0: and you were telling me that this uh, certain particular situation with business was in a way more stressful or or less desirable than being back in war because at least in war there were clear lines of you know the goal is to survive. Here's the mission you know, you know, who's on your team and whatnot. And that analogy to me was just, it will probably stick with me forever as just so powerful and impactful on, you know, how relative circumstances can be, you know, and just how real the the feelings are and the involvement is in business. Because like you said, business is supposed to be unemotional, but when you have unlimited personal guarantee and your entire life is at stake, it's like failure is always an option but not one that one would be willing to commit to and just how close it could be without, uh, you know, your own input control with different, you know, business partners and whatnot, the variables. So
1: it's like people don't believe me when I say it. And look, everybody's business is different from everybody else's. Everybody's war is different than everybody else's. Mm. Um, I joined the Marine Corps because my best friend growing up wanted to be a Marine. I wanted to join the Navy, right? My mom's side of the family was all army. My dad's side was all Navy. And, uh, I was leaning more Navy side, right? These tender hands, you know, (laughs) I I just couldn't see myself digging a foxhole with an entrenching tool every day. Little did I know, (laughs) but, um, my buddy was all about the Marines and, you know, that's, that was the direction we ended up going. Like he wanted to be a Marine. So I'm like, I guess I'm going to be a Marine. And, he was going to be the lifer. He was going to be the guy that did 20 years, and I was going to do my four and get out because I, I enlisted before 9-11. And then uh, my first year in the Marine Corps, the towers fell on, and I said, oh, I guess I'm going to be here a little bit longer than I expected. So, like, you know, in the infantry, you're surrounded by guys that are from all over America, guys that you've never seen before, you know, rich kids, poor kids, kids from the country, kids from the ghetto, the inner city, and, uh, you know, Marine Corps does a really good job of unifying you. You're all equally worthless, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, it becomes your family. I like people used to always joke, like the Marines, like the, the land of misfit children, you know, misfit toys, Uncle Sam's misguided children, all that stuff. But the camaraderie you have with these guys is, it's like everything. Like, uh, Sebastian Younger said, how do you know if someone's in your tribe? Would you give them your last morsel of food? Would you die for them? That's every Marine I've ever met. I'd give them my last bite of food, and I'd run through machine gun fire to save their life. I'd die for them. And many Marines have, right? So, like, you go to war, and it's like, it's not always really clearly defined, like, who the bad guy is and what you're allowed to do. And we used to joke the enemy knew the rules of engagement better than we did, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really simple. Survive. And not just for yourself like keep your team alive keep your guys alive, right and if you accomplish your mission and everybody goes home at the end of the deployment you did good you did your job right but outside of that like people are like, oh, you must have been worried about dying all the time if you were worried about dying then you weren't focusing on the mission and what you're trying to do that's like increasing the likelihood that you're, you're going to die in combat right so you just kind of like let it go you just released yourself to the concept that like I might die or I probably will die. Let's focus on the job. Mm -hmm. So let's think about like what everything else, like food, you know, you're, you're eating food out of a foil sack every day, three times a day, maybe, you know, um, what about paying your rent? Like, well, you're living in a hole, you know, you don't have to worry about rent, buddy. You don't have to worry about car payments. You don't have to worry about anything. All you have to do is focus on your job. So then you look at it like the flip coin, like the flip flip side of the coin. You come home and it's like, all right, not uniform anymore. You don't have that support structure. You don't have people that are, are going to give you their last morsel of food or would die for you. Like you're out in the workforce, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're working for a company, you're creating your own company. Like it's a weird thing to go from that level of fraternal love that you had with those brothers to no one cares about you. No one cares what you're doing. Like, thank you for your service, but, yeah, I don't need anybody to sweep up, you know. And I'm not hiring. It was just it was just weird that way. But, like, I, I'm serious. Like, war was easier than business because it's all on you. All the stress, all the worry, success or failure is on you. And it's, like, a different dynamic. Like, oh, you know, getting shot at, it's, I mean, at least for me, it was easier than worrying about how you're going to make payroll. mm
0: so when <clears throat> shoo, man, when you uh got out, you were in the marines for twelve years, is that right It was thirteen years thirteen years, and you got out after the o eight like economic uh crisis right
1: oh yeah, terrible time man worst <laughs> terrible time <clears throat> worst possible time what but, did,
0: uh, what was the first uh i guess civilian job that you did after your your tenure in the marines
1: well I, I'm not sure if I remember or not. I did so many like menial jobs just trying to survive when I first came home. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a sign company for a while, and I actually kind of enjoyed that because I got to use the bucket truck to go and like work on neon signs and that kind of thing. It's kind of funny because uh, a couple months ago, there's this uh, this hotel up near Harrisburg, and it was an Indian family that owned this hotel. And uh, I really like the, the owner of the hotel. He calls me. He, he's like, this guy still has my cell phone number from like years, years ago. And he's like, can you come fix my sign? And I'm like, no, man. And he's like, I'll pay you extra if you can come Saturday and fix my sign. And I'm like, I don't do that. I have not <laughs> done this for years and years. Like, how do you still have my number? <laughs> I felt really bad. And he's like, I wanted to help the guy. And I'm like... Part of me wanted, like, the problem-solve it. Like, well, what's wrong with the sign? And maybe yeah. maybe I could get my tools out of the garage and go help this guy. <laughs> 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 but, uh, no, I, I did a bunch of different stuff, and none of it was going anywhere. And uh, I guess, like, my ticket forward was I worked at a at a gun shop making $11 an hour with no health care and no prospect of advancement. And uh, I was great. It was my first sales job, and that's actually where I learned how to how to sell anything, mm-hmm. right? But you know, I never read a book about how to be a salesman or how to sell. It's just like I just sold people the stuff that like I would want to buy or I had bought the things I trusted, and a lot of it was stuff like you know aftermarket accessories that I had used on deployments, and I literally trust my life on. So I just told people kind of like my story like well i used this in iraq or i had this exact same thing you know and this is what i like about it and i just spoke the truth and i think that resonated with people and it turned out i was selling a bunch of stuff so after a while doing that um i realized i was kind of missing out so it came to like my uh yearly review with my my boss and he was being very gracious he was gonna bump me up a dollar an hour i was gonna be making 12 dollars an hour and I'm like, I don't want to raise. In fact, I don't want to be paid anymore. So what do you mean? I'm like, I want to be uh, paid on commission. And the thing was, like, I had looked at how much I had done in sales in the last six months. Mm-hmm. It was it was disgusting what I was paid versus what I was selling. So I thought that would be a good ploy. It wasn't. Like, I could see him do, like, the mental math. And he's like, yeah, I just can't do that. And uh, I left shortly after that. But oh, that was wow. good. Yeah, it was like... um I worked for this guy years ago. He's like one of those get rich quick type guys, you know, like, uh, I want to look the role of a businessman more than do what it takes to be a businessman. But the one thing I learned from this guy was he said, you got to know your own worth. You got to know your own value. And I think at that point I still didn't know what that was. You know, it's,
0: it's crazy. My first, so like my first, I mean, obviously I wasn't the, the Marines or military, anything like that. But my first corporate gig doing marketing, I was getting paid $12 an hour, no benefits, nothing. And I had just learned marketing a couple months prior on my own had no real clue. Well, anyway, it turns out, um, I helped the company make like a 50% increase in revenue and they were around for 93 years. So it's a substantial company. And, uh, I was like, Hey, can I like stop getting paid $12 an hour? And they gave me three months worth of salary as a bonus for the performance. And now that I look back on it, like, know the numbers, I was like, wow, I could have gotten like three years worth of salary as a bonus based, (laughs) based on what was done. And then they bumped me to $16 an hour with a little bit of benefits. And I was like, they're like, Oh, we got them the golden handcuffs. And I was kind of like, well, I learned accounting in that job and I also learned that like if I'm ever going to to do something I need to, And I love that company and I, I love the opportunity and everything that happened, like huge first step. It's like, man, when you own it, you get to really reap the rewards. There's a lot of risk, but when things go well, things go really well.
1: You know, the the story of how Kevlar was invented. I don't like Kevlar body armor, right? Like Kevlar is nylon. Fiber, super strong nylon fiber that's woven very tightly. It's a DuPont invention. And it was a woman that invented it. It was a female scientist. And she worked in a lab and she was trying to be able to create the next big thing for the company. And uh, it wasn't really going anywhere. And she's at home one night. She's making spaghetti. And she makes the pot of spaghetti and she puts the big one spoon in. And the spaghetti. Keeps the spoon from going down to the bottom of the pot, <laughs> and she like stares at it for a second. She turns the spoon around backwards, so it's like a skinny part thump straight down to the bottom of the pot. Hot. She's like, "You need to make a fiber that's so closely intertwined that it'll stop a bullet." So, like Kevlar armor will stop a uh, a pistol round, like nine millimeter, forty five, or whatever, because it's big and it's blunt, but it won't stop a knife. The knife will go right through Kevlar. So, like, the analogy I use for people is, like, you have a cargo net. You can chuck rocks for that cargo net all day long, but you can't throw basketballs through it, right? Mm-hmm. So, she's all excited about this spaghetti idea. She goes in the work. She develops Kevlar. And they're like, great job. Company IP. This is ours. I think they gave her, like, a gold watch or something. Maybe, like, a, a small bonus. But, like, if she would have just, like, had that idea... And then, like the next day, went into work and be like, "I'm not really feeling this anymore. I resign." And say she had like a a non-compete or whatever. She just like went and bust tables as a waitress for like three years or whatever, and then developed Kevlar. Like, where would she have been in her life? Like, she did like the right thing. She did what she was paid to do. But she kind of came up with the idea on her own, making spaghetti.
0: It's just. I mean, I, I have a friend that his grandfather came up with the invention for the plastic containers that hold laundry detergent. Yeah. And he worked for Procter and Gamble and they just strong armed him into it and he didn't have any IP. And it's like a similar story to what you're saying. He did his job. He did his job very, very well. And as an owner, it's great to have people that want to do their job. But like there's one thing that I, I'll say about it and then I'll, I'll move on. Keep asking you questions is it's a really hard to determine when the right time is to go from being an employee to being an owner. It is one of the most difficult decisions or, or steps to take in a career. It's not for everybody, but if you have a Kevlar idea or you can come up with a a new container, maybe that's a sign from God or whomever (laughs) that he might, maybe being an employee is not necessarily the path for you going forward.
1: Well, look, I've invented a number of things, right?
0: Yeah. And I want want to definitely pick your brain on that process.
1: But this is the thing, right? Like every single person I've met in my entire life has had a million dollar idea. Mm. If you ever say to yourself, man, I wish someone made blank, like stop what you're doing and like just go Google it, see if anybody's done it. And like, you might be surprised. It might be like, how does this not exist in some way, shape or form out there? If you can't find anything, like your idea, like I wish someone made blank, that means you need to make blank. And you could be anybody. You could be like a a city bus driver, a housewife or whatever. You had the idea. There's a whole American industry out there that will make the thing for you. You don't need to know how to do it. The hard part's done. It's having the initial idea. So like we were talking about earlier, like, about like businesses that fail and why they fail and all the many reasons. But like the more time goes by, the more I'm starting to believe it's people don't believe in themselves enough. They don't believe in their aptitude or their ability or like, Oh, I I could never do something like that. Or, you know I mean? It's like, uh, there's obviously a ton of reasons why business fail, but I I think a lot of businesses fail early on or never, maybe never even get off the ground is because, People just don't believe in the idea enough or they don't believe that they're the right person for the idea.
0: So it's limiting beliefs. It's beliefs around, well, I'm just an employee making $12 an hour. I can't possibly have a contributing effort towards a business. I could make millions. I think you're a hundred percent right. I think people look at beliefs as, especially if they're their own beliefs, uh, as things not to be questioned as it's inherently true. And I think beliefs, the older I get, the more I try to evaluate them on whether or not they serve me. Like, is this a belief that it's helping me? And if so, why do I have it? If it's not helping me, like, why is it there?
1: Especially if it's a reoccurring thought. Like, it keeps an idea that keeps popping up. So when did you make this
0: step? I know you, you sold guns at a shop. And when did you make the step into entrepreneurship? Because I know your last company, you had partners. Um, and I do know you had... You had quite a bit of experience writing as well. well so that, yeah, sales that, that was, and so that was a writing. job
1: after the gun shop was I had come up with my first idea for a product and I didn't like the direction that I was going. Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna lie, it was I loved sa- sales but I didn't like the the format that I was doing sales. So when I went off the right for a couple of years I kept developing more products and I learned more about like the industry that I'm in and I talked to a lot of people and that's actually what I liked about writing was I got to go to a lot of factories across America and meet a lot of different businessmen and women and a lot of them overshared (laughs) like they would tell me stuff like just blindly in good faith and I'm like okay okay oh wow hey Moving forward, never tell this to anyone ever again. <laughs> like, I appreciate you trusting me enough, but, and I'm, I'm telling you right now, none of this is going to be my article, but, like, you just gave me a bunch of trade secrets, or you just oh my. gave me this, the recipe for success to do what you're doing. I, I they know, didn't even know they did that. They were so happy or proud to talk about what they were doing that, yeah, they, they gave away the, the good stuff with it, too. But, you know, I put up a reputation because you know, people would tell me things in confidence or not even realize you're telling me something that profound or important. And I didn't betray their trust. You know, I didn't run to their competitor. And like, I got some information that might be worth money to you. I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, good ethics of being a writer or whatever. It's just like, well, being I mean a good person
0: that, that translates so much into business too. It's like, I feel like we talked about this earlier. So many people try and chase a quick buck. Like, how can I, capitalize on this transaction and make profit off of a single I, transaction. Dude, like I feel like there's like, like so like
1: many people now. It's like the, the
0: lifetime value of having a customer, the lifetime value of having a relationship or goodwill. It's like goodwill compounds so much more than money.
1: It's like these people, like and I'm, I'm not knocking how anybody makes their, their, their living, but yeah, there's, like, this generation, like, especially with, like, younger people, because I'm starting Yacht to, girls. Starting to be, a, <laughs> I'm starting to be an old grumpy man, no right? No disrespect. But it's, like, I want to be an entrepreneur, and, like, they don't have anything to sell. So it's, like, they want to <laughs> run a Amazon store where they sell, like, I don't know, like, yoga mats, or, mm-hmm. like, they're not connected to the product in any way, in any form. They don't even believe in the product. They just want to get rich. They just want to, like... True. So it's like some of them are like successful with it, I guess, but it's like chasing trends. Like uh what were those things that all Remember
0: all, when entrepreneurship wasn't cool?
1: I don't think it ever was cool. <laughs> I, I I still don't think it's
0: cool. It's terrifying.
1: <laughs> not, like uh <laughs> like fidget spinners a couple of years yeah. ago. Remember those things? Yep. So like every kid had to have a fidget spinner. There's people that like put their life savings and starting like fidget spinner companies and like hiring factories in China to make fidget spinners. There's people that made like millions of dollars off those those things, right? Mm-hmm. And there's people that lost everything trying to make those things and sell them. Because they saw it as a, oh, like everybody else is doing it, I better do it. It was like, dude, it's not something that's gonna last. It's not something that's gonna stand the test of time. It's a fad. And I, well, I see a lot of people pursuing businesses that essentially are fads. That That's actually a really important distinction as
0: far as the signal of when to start a business what you were discussing earlier with Kevlar, it's like if someone has an idea that needs to be expressed and needs to be created, then definitely don't block it. But if you're like forcing an idea and it doesn't, that didn't come to you in that same sort of inspirational way
1: or someone else's idea, or someone else's slightly idea, repackaged.
0: Like I don't know about forcing ideas, like let ideas take their natural course. And it's so different. It's easier said than done. But to your point, I mean the motivation behind creating art or products or inventions whatever really matters you know i think one that's one of the neat things about talking with you Nate is when you show me your notebook of inventions and you're like hey here's like these 12 products i created and drafted and drew up and i gave one of the prototypes to this person that i that i know and this is the use case and you could like answer any of my questions it's like truly an idea that has taken form versus you know I think I'm going to start a, uh, a pyramid scheme, you know, <laughs> someone like we could really, or I don't know. I'm kind of laughing at it, but any other like business idea that someone comes up with when they had too many coffee, too many coffees or something, it's like, no, it's half baked, but yours is completely fully baked. And I, I think that's, you have the, the purpose and the utility of the, of the invention already preordained. And I think good sales and good writing is supposed to communicate something that would be complicated in simple terms that anyone can understand for someone that didn't serve in the military. I feel like I have a whole new understanding on military gear.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's only cause I talked your ear off about <laughs> about some of it, but you know, it's, it's like, like, like people ask me about the military, right? And if I regret it or if I don't regret it, or if I wish I had done things different, a lot of times I don't know how to answer it. Right. Like, a big part of me feels like, man, I wish I would have just went to college for business. But I know that if I would have went to college for business, like, right out of high school, I probably wouldn't be a businessman right now. I'd be, like, a barista or something. (laughs) I'd probably be a failure of a businessman. But it was like, hey, I want to go do something really hard. And I did that for myself. Like, Mm -hmm. I needed that discipline, and I needed that regiment, and, like, I needed to be a part of something bigger than myself, you know? Like... I wasn't a bad kid, but I kind of did whatever I wanted. My parents weren't real authoritative, you know, like Mm -hmm. like I looked at the people I respected and I looked up to and, you know, they're older guys and most of them were vets. And I'm like, how do I get to be like grandpa? How do I get to be like my uncle John? How do like these, what what do they all have in common? They don't do the same type of work. They're all very different men, but what's this thread that holds them together? And for me, that was like. Well, they're in the military and there's some secret sauce. I walked away with that from, from that with, right. But like, if I want to have served, I probably want to have come up with my first invention and my second invention, my third, you know, the other thing is like my drive, right? Military is like all about mission accomplishment or at least it used to be. Yeah. So it's like, Hey, how do we do this? What's the, What's the way of doing this that's the most simplistic, least amount of moving parts, the least assets, the least amount of help? You know, like what's our cost of failure? And it's like to me, that the main principle I walked away with is cost of failure. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, we need to go accomplish this objective. Mm-hmm. What's an acceptable cost of failure? Is it someone getting killed, like one of our guys? That's an unacceptable cost of failure to me, right? For 99% of what we did in the global war on terror. Mm -hmm. So like, how do we do this where you can't mitigate all risk, but we change it from it's, it's probable someone's going to get killed to it's possible that someone's going to get killed. Right. So like with the business stuff, I look at it the same way. Like what's my cost of failure? Like every decision I make, like if I invest $50,000 in this project, what if it just doesn't work out? Can I survive losing $50,000? Right. Like if the answer is yes, then proceed. And the answer is like, no, dude, you can't survive that. Then, dude, like,
0: that's such an important way to look at decision making. Like, when I, when people are younger, right, like eighteen, they're joining the military. Like, I'm I'm ready to die for my country. Like, they're they're gung ho. But then you get in the leadership position after your, through your thirteen years, you're like, no, I don't want to have a probable that one of my members will die. I don't even be possible is like barely above the threshold of an acceptable decision. And like, for as an investor, I had invested everything, all the cash I had in my bank with an unlimited personal guarantee that I'd be on the hook for a lot, lot more than I even own. <laughs> and I thought that was acceptable. But then as soon as I had, you know, a child, I was like unacceptable, you know, cost, of, like the cost of failure that would the bleed over now that it's not just me. It, it's such a crazy way to, anyway, I'm rambling because I'm just like mind blown by the way you describe the cost of failure and how it predicates your business decisions. It's so super overlooked by people.
1: But it's like, <clears throat> Like to me, it's like a guiding like arrow, right? Yeah. Like, you know, what, what was it called? Like the, the decision-making process that people use for like, you know, for anything, right? Like if I choose to do this today, I might run out of time and not be able to pick my kids up from school. Is that an acceptable cause of failure?
0: Yeah. I don't know if leaving my child straight at a daycare. Yeah. Right. That would be (laughs) unacceptable right now.
1: So you probably shouldn't (laughs) do that thing that might eat more time that would prevent you from accomplishing your objective of making good on your obligation. (laughs) But it's also like thinking things through ahead of time. Like, I think a lot of people look, especially nowadays, like our society as a whole, we don't want to think about the negatives ever because the negatives are unpleasant. Right. Yeah. Like the bad things.
0: P- people look at emotions as of, as opposed to having fear or anger, having utility whatsoever. Like, oh, those are bad emotions. I never want to experience bad emotions.
1: So if you avoid that, then you won't figure out what you're going to do if the bad <laughs> yeah. thing happens, despite yeah. your best attempts to avoid it, right? Right. Like you have no contingency plan because you refuse to think of the unpleasant thing.
0: Like they take the phrase, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, literally. Yeah, exactly. It's as it's, opposed to what you were saying before with your journalistic. Uh, hey, don't give me trade secrets. Like la la la. I didn't hear that. <laughs> that's what that. I think that's what that phrase actually means. So so then it's like, uh,
1: <laughs> like the Marines would always say, like uh, the only unfair fight's the one you lose, right? Mm, yeah, and always cheat, always win. Like, interesting. Like no, that was reinforced. Winners, winners write history. This is true, but it's like. Like, I don't want to get involved in a fight that I'm not going to win. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to win, like, overwhelmingly win. Sun, like,
0: Sun Ze Art of War.
1: Right? So, like, how do I do that? Like, well, is it better to be the one setting up the ambush? Or is it better to be the one walking into the ambush? The secret is to never let yourself walk into the ambush and be, like, the best at setting up ambushes for the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. So, I might, I might, yeah, I'm not going to make this into, like... Oh, Art of War, Sun Tzu, like... No, nah, that's all good. ...podcast here, but... It,
0: hey, Valuable Brainstorms, We're Preserving Life and Liberty and Pursuit of Property. That's my tagline. Well,
1: people get mad at me because I say that, like, you know, I read Art of War when I was, like, a private or whatever yeah. when I was 18. I'm like, man, this book is worthless for fighting wars. <laughs> and, like, business guys, you know, like, business guys talk oh, they about love Art it. of War. I'm like, dude, this book is worthless for business, too. <laughs>
0: I mean, I read Art of War around the same age, around 18, and I just remember it being, like... A bunch of fortune cookies.
1: Yeah, yeah it's kind of like, like okay, these are really pithy and like little little parables. Like the only one that stands out, literally the only thing I can remember is, never stand in the way of an army returning home. Hmm. They will fight more ferocious than any enemy you could possibly encounter. Really? Yeah. And I didn't really understand that until it was time for me to go home. Actually, I actually had this like really cruel joke played on me by a sergeant. We were on the tarmac, getting ready to fly home. It was for my my second deployment. And uh, the sergeant said they needed volunteers to stay on for another another six months. And he's like, Nate, you're staying. And I, I probably gave him, like, the death stare. Like, I wanted to go home. It was, it was a bad, bad deployment. This is, like, 0405. Mm. And he's like, how bad do you want to get on that airplane? And I'm like, there's nothing I wouldn't do to get on an airplane. Like, I was on my way home. Mm. And this guy's telling me I can't go home. I'm like, I'm like, I would murder this sergeant. And, you know, if I did, if I wasn't gonna go to Leavenworth for the rest of my life, like yeah. that's how bad I went on that airplane. But like that little Sun Tzu thing clicked. I'm like, I get it. He wasn't wrong about that. Never get in the way of someone that the, wants to go home.
0: The only thing that I, I find, I, mean, I obviously it was a long time ago. I read it last, but it's like when you are weak, you should appear strong. And when you are strong, you should appear weak. Like rope a doping, like Muhammad Ali, but I find it funny when it's like when people are poor, they try to appear rich, like wearing designer and Gucci and all these expensive clothes, and then you look at rich people and like their clothing may be expensive, but it doesn't look like it's not branded or anything. Oh, it's sometimes like the
1: richest people I know, it's like yeah. muddy work boots and the yeah. torn up old baseball cap and yep hundred percent. But you know that's the outfit they wore. To create their wealth. Yes. You know, for someone, not everybody's like wearing a suit to make their money. You know, there's there's a lot of people that do a wide array of different things. Like we were talking about, like the the honeysucker truck, like the the guy that drives around and cleans out the portage johns. Yeah, yeah. Like those companies make good money. Totally. But do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. No. No. <laughs> no one does. I mean, I don't know what the turnover is for those truck drivers that, that do that job. But it's a necessary job. It's a dirty job. But it's a dirty job. It's true. No, it's really true.
0: And people think, like, if you look at some of the richest females in the Forbes list, I think one of the top three or top five, if you look at it independently, not like through divorce, Roofing Company, like one of the largest roofing companies own, owns that. It's like, roofing is not sexy. It's not like, you know, a yacht girl where you're doing, I mean, there's some like, cosmetics and stuff like that there, but it's like a lot of the work that makes a lot of money are things that are necessary for survival. It's like shelter, yeah.
1: food. Like everybody needs a roof. Good Everyone luck. needs a roof. You don't want to put money on a roof. Good luck. You know?
0: Yeah. And again, like no one ever grows up and like, I want to own a roofing company. I'm like, well, if you knew more about the economy, maybe you would change
1: your mind. Own a roofing company, but also buy stock in the blue tarp company, the companies that make those like vinyl tarps. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, well, So your first business, so after the the journalism and and that whole, it's so interesting, you you got into the manufacturing of weapons? Is that what it was?
1: Partially. Partially. So I got hired on to be a director of business development for a defense company. Okay. Which I was not qualified for
0: (laughs) at all. Killed in the interview process.
1: No, no, no. I'm like... Uh, originally it was supposed to be product development right because that's mm-hmm. where i, I kind of started to prove that I, I knew what i was doing right but uh i was kind of intimidated by it because i'm like wow director of business development and this is a you know up-and-coming company and they got some good products and some good ideas and some I had already worked on or created um so now it was like the gun shop sales routine on steroids right. it's like all right now we're playing for keeps like multimillion dollar deals with this, with the government, with the American government, you know, it was, uh, it was all the same though. Like, all right, present, make a quality product, make a good product. My advice is make the best possible product you can out of the best materials that you, you can make it out of. Right, Right. And then stand by it. And then lastly is like answer your emails, pick up the phone. Like, don't be scared to pick up the phone. Everybody's terrified to pick up the phone. It's Especially like, nowadays. Oh, yeah, it's like
0: a, oh, it's not a text or an
1: email? I'm not answering that. Exactly, yeah. right? So I'm like, hey, uh, I just got your email. I'm not really sure. It seems like you're apprehensive or something's wrong. Let's talk this out and problem solve it. Mm-hmm. Like, one of my like driving principles in life is bad news doesn't get better with time. That's a great principle. Like, if there's a problem, it's a small problem. Like, don't push it off. Just address it right now because then if you don't, it's going to grow into a much bigger problem.
0: I, uh, I'm a, a, nerd for Norse mythology and the parable of Fenrir, the wolf that eats the sun, like, you know, and Ragnarok, if you're familiar with this at all, uh, Odin, who's like the, the God of the, the Viking. He's like the all father, the basically head of the easier the w- w- which
1: death metal song is this again?
0: <laughs> he, he has, I don't actually know <laughs> Peyton parish. He, uh, has the opportunity to kill the wolf as a puppy. And he's like, nah, someone stops him, convinces him it's just a puppy. And then it becomes like this gigantic thing that actually like kills him. It's it, like, yeah, it becomes, well, you could he have had just killed chance. it when it was a puppy. And now he killed you.
1: It happens, man. It happens. But yeah. So anyway, so I, I did that and that's where I learned how to make money. That's like product when, development. No, the, or the business. business development. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I mean, obviously the product, is, you
0: learn how to sell in the gun shop, but you learn how to make money yes, doing like real money. B2B business development.
1: Like it's not like selling somebody a $300 shotgun. This is like yeah. closing million dollar deals yep. with like heavy hitters. And it's like, it was frustrating for me because I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna be honest. I'm going to explain what the product does, what it, how it can benefit the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, like these are the larger orders sometimes or like at least for like the contract stuff. And, uh, you know, I I would talk to my bosses. I'm like, hey, they want to buy X number of of this item. What do you want me to quote them? And they would tell me the dollar amount, right? And I would take that dollar amount. I would win win the contract, win the quote based off that quote. And then they're like, what? You landed it? And they would go and try to renegotiate the price at a higher price. I'm like, are you insane? what you're the one that gave me the number for the quote and now that i got it you're gonna try to squeeze more blood out of that stone and like we'd lose the contract as a result
0: money money in the bank is worth more than any potential profit yeah that's not done deal
1: that was kind of like what made me realize i needed to leave that was a huge
0: lesson learned though what not
1: to do i where i saw it going was like Cause you lose trust too. I mean, I, I'm sure they weren't. Happy. I'm the one with the personal relationship with the customer. Exactly. And now my bosses are, are like, like, to me it was like, it was hurting my reputation. Mm. You know, I'm like, I don't break my word. And if I do break my word, I make it right. And well, it, your
0: reputation cannot be bought. It has to be earned over a long period of time. Yeah. And one decision can ruin
1: it. Exactly. So I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall there where it's, it was a lot of stuff like that. And, it didn't bode well with me on like a moral and ethical level and on a personal level I'm like these guys are gonna ruin my name like yeah. if they're not gonna be men of their word and they're not gonna make good on what they say what can I trust I can't trust anything so that ultimately is what pushed me into starting my first business
0: Hmm. and you had the product development knowledge from what you were doing before you know you were looking at you did business development and you are in product development, so you have both sides of that coin. And so I understood sales
1: from yeah. the individual level to the larger organizational and level.
0: With your military career, you know you knew what products would be useful and like how and why and how important, right? So you were the consumer for some of these products. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know,
1: but like soldiering hasn't really changed a whole lot. Like, we want to outfit a Civil War soldier. What does he need? He needs boots. Mm-hmm. Needs a rifle. Needs a uniform, needs like some gear to carry you know, like the ammunition and well where's he gonna sleep? Oh man, we gotta get him a wool blanket. Mm-hmm. You know? Like all the logistics of that. And then you go to like World War One, it's not really any different. World War is not really any different. Right. Vietnam. I mean, like look, we still issue wool blankets. They're still a thing, man. <laughs> we still have wool blankets. And just you know, now we got nicer sleeping bags to take out to the field or, or whatever. Yeah. But but like what i'm saying is like the logistics of it is timeless. It's like um i read this thing once that said that you can tell if you're fighting a professional based on one piece of equipment. If the enemy is carrying an entrenching tool, you're fighting a professional. And I'm like, "Whoa, that's crazy." And i thought about it cuz like, you know, most um, pretty much 99% of the people i fought did not carry shovels. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> not carry entrenching tools, but the first army to ever issue as standard issue equipment an entrenching tool was the roman legion 2000 years ago jeez every roman legionnaire got a shovel a spade to carry so it's like you know sword and shield and armor don't forget your don't forget your shovel man you're going to need that out in out campaign but it was like it was part of their uh, their doctrine like if you didn't have everybody carry their own shovel, like, oh, we're just going to put the shovels on the wagon. What happens if the wagon breaks down and now you can't entrench and you can't fortify. You're out there like way out in the middle of like Germania and like mm. the, the dark forest of death where like dudes wearing bear skins are going to kill <laughs> yeah, you, you. know. right. Yep. So, like, if you if you can't build your fort in a timely fashion with using the the spade as a as a as a shovel, obviously, but also as a, a cutting tool, like a hatchet, you can mm-hmm. use it as a hatchet, then you're probably not going to be successful. It's like something that small, and the Romans identified its severe importance to winning battles, winning wars.
0: It's so funny. I, I picked up a gig one night a week coaching wrestling to adults that do like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym, but most people don't know how to take someone to the ground or be kept from taking them to the ground. And I had to like reteach footwork and, and just like basics to adults. And I'm like, I never had to think about this because I started wrestling at, at 10 years old. And then me think of this uh, parable from John Wooden, a very famous college basketball coach. And the first day of practice every year, he would teach his, his uh, athletes how to tie their shoes Right. Because if you don't have socks that are t- tie, uh, taut and you don't have shoes that are on properly, you'll get blisters. Blisters can t- turn into rolled ankles. Rolled ankles can turn into ACLs. ACLs turn into your careers over. And it's the same thing like what you're talking about with these tools. Like you understand the importance of basics with the shovels and the spades and like all these you know, products that you've invented. It's like it may not be the sexiest thing, but like it's the little things. It's the little things that yeah, really like add up. The
1: little things, all of them add up right? Like the whole, the devil's in the details. Yes. But it's also like this, like uh, if you have someone that doesn't care it's like this, like if if you have a player or a competitor who brushes off your how to tie his shoes lesson, right? And he doesn't tie his shoes, like what can you trust him with aside from that? Like if, if he doesn't have enough self-discipline to follow the instruction that you're giving him do you think honestly that he's going to follow any other guidance ever given? Probably sure. not. And if you're sloppy with those little things, you're probably almost certainly going to be sloppy with the bigger things, the more important things. So like, you know, there's all kinds of people. Like there's all those self-help bo- books out there and like make your bed every morning, Yeah, you know? it's it, You're accomplishing something right off the bat. I don't care if you make your bed or not, okay? What I care about is like, the things that actually matter. And now, like, we know that everybody knows that if you set a, a pattern for yourself, you know, a good routine, once you get it, like one or two little good routines, it's easier to create more additional routines, right? More productivity or, you know, like, hey, every day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon – I'm going to get away from my electric devices and sit down and just think about mm-hmm. the problems of the, of today or this week or whatever, allotting that time. And that's like creating a pattern mm-hmm. for yourself. I think there's all these little secrets of success, but you know, it's like a lot of them are surprisingly small. They just add up. So I like, mean,
0: what you said it earlier when it came to business development, you're like, Hey, a lot of my job is just answering the phone. It's crazy how many people I know that would be in sales or whatever, or be afraid of doing sales. Because if someone call and if they someone calls them like, eh, I'll answer it later. I'll let it go to voicemail. I'll answer that voicemail later. They don't call someone back in a timely fashion. It's like you just lost out on a potential opportunity. Like it's your so much of your job even in business is just doing the
1: routine of showing up and picking up the phone. Here's the thing. Everybody is in the people business. Yes. It doesn't matter what you do. Well, you provide a good or a service or whatever, right? How do you sell that? It's communication. Mhm. Like uh think about like the the how many languages are on earth like how many different languages humans speak right like everybody independent from each other a very long time ago like as soon as we started to to verbalize our needs and wants we're like whoa this is like this is a big deal for humans here let's pursue this let's move forward with this we refined our language our language is still changing constantly right new words are being added to the dictionary and whatever but it's like the whole reason why we have this vocal ability is to communicate. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest to understand. Like you can be illiterate and still have a conversation. Right. Not that there's that many illiterate people anymore. There's people are, they choose not to read. That's a different kind of illiteracy. Yeah.
0: Ability and willingness. Although they, it seems to be much different. I mean, I think
1: unwilling is almost worse than unable, but you know, so it's like, like, why are you scared to talk to this person? Like, yeah. you're scared they're going to say no, or, hey, I don't want the thing. Or,
0: but it's like you said before, you have to lean into the negative emotions, do the contingency plan, like that. That uh, what's the co- the cost evaluation of making a decision? Like, if you knew that if you got rejected 99 times, but on the hundredth try you get a yes, and that yes could do a, a million dollar contract, I'm sure people would get rejected 99 times as fast as they humanly possibly could.
1: I think it's, like, the other thing is, like, people were scared to get yelled at. Mm. I'm like, all right, so here's this is what the Marine Corps taught me. It's okay to get yelled at, right? <laughs> like, like, you get yelled at every day in the Marines, usually multiple times, right? Like, getting yelled at isn't, like, getting beaten, you know? It's not, like, I know, like, the whole, like, uh, what do they call it, emotional abuse or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, the Marine Corps is just, like... What is it? Trauma bonding. <laughs> it's you and a bunch of dudes trauma bonding by getting yelled at and shot at. You yeah. Know? But like, I don't mind, I don't mind getting yelled at. Like, I don't like getting yelled at for things that aren't my fault or out of my control. But I, like, I would much prefer getting yelled at than the silent treatment. Oh yeah. A hundred percent.
0: Or someone lying to me to try to, hurt, to appease my feelings.
1: Businesses do that. Like you, something didn't go the way that you wanted and no one from the company is talking to you anymore. Mm. Like, that gets inside your head. Like, what happened? Why are these people this upset that they won't right. want to have a conversation about it? But that's what I'm saying about, like, the small things. Like, if you nip it in the bud, like, bad news doesn't get better with time, mm-hmm. then it can never grow to that point where, like, now you're just not doing business anymore. So, like, I, I'll talk to people about this. Like, hey, listen, like, say um, I contract someone to provide a... a, a some material for me or provide a service. Like they're going to machine a part for me. Right. I'm like, listen, man, I don't want this to happen, but if you're going to be behind schedule, the second you realize that you're going to be behind schedule, just please let me know. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get upset about it. Right. So like they say, it's going to be a month, four weeks, right? Like one week into it after the purchase order has been submitted. They're like, Hey, the machine broke. I'm like, okay, thanks for letting me know. Like, how long do you think this is going to do? Oh, we had to order this part. It's going to add a week onto it. That's tolerable. Okay, I can plan around that because I have enough time to be able to plan. But if it's like... And you want to give them a cookie
0: after that because it's behavior that you you want. You want to reinforce that. You can't yell at them. Thank you so much for letting me know. Yeah,
1: they're going to be scared to tell you anything bad in the future if you, like, tear their head off, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, this is not a problem like Marine Corps sergeants have, you know. they'll just tear your head off again in five minutes from now. Yeah. But so like the month goes by and the problem happened the first week, the same scenario, but it's the day of delivery. And they're like, yeah, you know, we meant to reach out, but it's going to be another week. Like you plan like the next stage of production or your launch or whatever. Right? Like that's infinitely more disruptive. It's the same exact problem. occurred at the exact same time, but, because someone was scared to tell you the bad news, now it's, now it's hurting you, you know, you know, it, it, it's infinitely worse and it, it could be small things. The other thing is like the more steps you have along the, the line, like if you, the more people you rely on for a good or service, like a lot, all of them extra time. Hmm. Like, cause like one day with one guy and then it's another lost day with an, the next guy downstream. Well, that's a week by the time you get through seven people. But it's never a week; it's always going to be more. <laughs>
0: I know in the in the wholesale distribution, everyone wants just in time inventory. Americans got so accustomed to that pre COVID. You know, just in time inventory, not holding anything surplus, importing it no, overseas. It is like, and it's just like amazing most, that we is,
1: were so pampered. It is the most un American concept is last minute, like the just in time ordering, right? Yeah, this is America. This is the land of. ...of opportunity and excess. Yes. It's like this. We made so many Colt 1911 45 caliber handguns in World War II that we never had to make them again.
0: Jeez. So
1: like the 1980s, and we're still issuing out 1911s, they're like brand new pistols in the Cosmoline that were made in 1945. That's how many. We stocked up for the long haul. You know? I'm not saying that's like the exact example. Maybe it's No, not but like to you.
0: your point, like... It's it, always good to have more because when when what happens with the supply chain? There's one, however many steps. Like let's just say there's 15 steps. You know, a big problem was there wasn't enough dock workers at these ports to unload. sort of just boats sitting in the ocean with all these goods, and no one was there to unload them. I'm like, that's the problem. Like, I look at who, it like, who who but if you don't budget for the fact that, you know, what usually takes six months can now take 12. This happened you, during COVID. Yeah. I saw this happen.
1: Yeah. So it's like the more variables you introduce into that chain, the more opportunity there is, there is for something to go wrong, right? So everything I make, I make with American materials in America. I will never, never will I ever make anything overseas. Period. Full stop. And people will like criticize me for this. They're like, you know, you could get your same thing made in China for a fraction of the cost and your, your margin. And they're going off of cost. Yeah, they're going off cost. Not value. Right? Not value. So they're not thinking about what happens when like COVID hits, right? Like we were overdue for a pandemic. Like mark my words, it will happen again. It'll probably be worse this really? time around. Oh, I guarantee. You. Yeah. I read this book about, uh, epidemiology, like like 10 years ago, it was a guy, I forget the name of the book or even who wrote it, but it was a, a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. someone that studied his whole life was studying plagues and we had near misses in the past with, uh, like, uh, what was it? Like the H1N1. Yeah. And like the swine flu and was it Ebola? E- yeah. O- E-Cola. Ebola. Like, yeah. One's know. from chicken. E-Cola. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. Like, 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 but, um, uh, <laughs> I had a buddy of mine, my buddy Pete, his grandmother remembered Spanish influenza. Jeez. So I, like, when I met grandma, she was like 98 years old and I said something and we were talking and she's like, Oh, I remember that. And I'm like, grandma, you remember Spanish influenza? She's like, yeah, I was a little girl. Uh, we didn't go to school, and she like, we just sat down and talked to her for like a couple hours about this, and she's like, "Yeah, there's a mass grave like down the street from where they buried all the people." So me and my buddy we, like, we hop in the car, we, like, Grandma wasn't lying. There's was a mass grave, 123 people like outside of Norristown, Pennsylvania, where so many people died. Like they they just put them in the mass grave, and she said like uh, like after it was all done, they're going to exhum the bodies and put them like, but it was so terrible and so many people died and it's just so brutal. They just like, yeah, let's, let's just let them stay there. You know, what, if, what if we rekindle it by exhuming the bodies like insane. Right. But that was like just a hundred years ago. It's not that long Yeah, it's not that long ago. But you think about like, this is 1918. The like people didn't have cars, like trucks and cars were new. There was an international, uh, Air travel. You oh, know? the air
0: travel thing is so you think just about like, and, absolutely a multiplier because how
1: many people come in and out from all over? And it was like uh population density, it was like 1.1 yeah. 1. 1 billion people on the entire planet in 1900. And Jeez. now we're at like what, like seven? seven seven billion people. So the numbers of people and the rate that we we move around and where we move, like we can go get on an airplane right now and fly to Sydney, like that mm-hmm. wasn't feasible when Spanish influenza hit, you know, right. so the spread, the spread was slower, but look what it did. It was horrific. So anyway, what I'm saying is like, what if you had something like that happen again? If you relied solely on foreign made uh, material or foreign made goods, you'd end up like a lot of the companies I watched go bankrupt. I watch a lot of companies pack up shop because of COVID for, for me it was the opposite because only using us made material and only making things myself here, mm-hmm. it, it didn't affect me at all. I watched a lot of, a lot of other people in the same industry like really struggle with that. But uh, it's like you're relying on you're not even relying on another company for your success or failure. You're relying on another nation. A the other rival thing is nation. if
0: it's a rival nation too, in the way that these international laws work, like good luck. Like if, if you have a company in, in North America or United States, even better. And they take your money for a, let's just say you want to make a thousand parts or something. They cash your check and they never make the parts. You know that the government will have your back and like help you get paid. Like there's a course of action. Oh yeah. But what happens if you do that overseas? (laughs) Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. You know what I Uh, mean?
1: Factory number 17, Shanghai, China, like. Do you think uh, they're going to care? They're not going to give a shit. You don't know. You just got beat. Yeah. So.
0: Now, I'm not saying that that happens all the time, but it's, it's an additional factor in that chain. Because it's not just the supply chain of point A to point B. It's also like the contingency plan of there's there's another variable you can't control
1: for. Well, I'll go like this. Like, uh, so a lot of people don't know this. Every single uniform item that's issued to an American soldier, Marine, airman, sailor, whatever, right, has to be made in America, mm-hmm. right? And it was uh, a lot of this was... Federal law written while President Eisenhower was in office. But basically it was like strategic interest, right? Here's a great example of this. There's this company uh, made boots during Vietnam. So like you think about Vietnam, huge war, lots of guys getting drafted. You need boots for everybody, right? Just like our Civil War soldier we're talking about. So this company made its fortune making boots. That's all it did. Just made boots for the military. So... Around 2005, 2006, Iraq War, the Army's building up its numbers. It's going to do its big surge. Hopefully, it's going to make a big difference in in Iraq. So, they go back to this reliable boot vendor they've used for decades. And like, here's a massive contract for boots for all the guys coming in. These guys have proven themselves capable in the past. But the difference between Vietnam and 2005 is that that company sold off assets and downsized its production capability. It no longer owns the tools and no longer employs enough people to make good on this giant contract. So these these executives, (laughs) like to me, I can't even believe they thought they were going to get away with it. They subcontracted the boot for this army contract and had them made in China and had the boots shipped from China where they sewed Made in America tags and, no. and provided it to the, the American military as made in America. What? Right? So boots are like falling apart. Guys are getting issued boots, and like soles are tearing off after like a week. Stitchings popping. So imagine being like an 18 year old private, and you're getting sent to Iraq or Afghanistan, and they give you issue a pair of uh, desert boots, and before you even get on the airplane to leave, the sole falls off your shoe. This like falls off the boot, like how how terrible that would be right i guess that would be preferable to having your boot fall off like you know your first week in afghanistan but
0: yeah but that's borderline oh it's street criminal it's sabotage for the you know but
1: it, it was purely greed right it was it was it was so that they didn't lose the contract and and probably a little bit like like bad news doesn't get better of time if they would have went back to the army and said hey listen this delivery schedule I know we said we could do it in a year, but honestly, it's going to take 16 months or it's whatever. Like, I I feel like the government would have worked with them. Even if they lost the contract by saying the bad news, they lost it on better terms. The
0: entire. You're going to lose it anyway.
1: The entire executive suite went to federal prison over it. Rightfully so. Yeah, it was fraud. They should. Yeah. They defrauded the American people and they jeopardized American soldiers' lives. I'm glad that there's some justice. That's good yeah right but here's the thing though it's like if it wasn't federal law that boots had to be made in america would oh uh, what, what would happen what yeah. happen? like i think about it all the time like what if we got in a like we're it's a kind of a scary place to be right now like yeah. with the war with ukraine like that could be world war three right there you know and then you got the chinese getting froggy taiwan with taiwan right like i don't really know if we have the ability one, to raise the army to the numbers that we would need, but how would well, we equip that even army? look at
0: Mexico, too. Like, what's happening in Cuba? Like, isn't there a Chinese or a Russian base being built in Cuba right now? And isn't the Mexican president being like, hey, better not do anything to the cartels? Like, and I, I have a friend that is kind of native, native from that area, and he's saying that on their local news or whatever, they're basically, there's protests like, hey, China and Russia, come save us from America. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't know. I'm not talking about geopolitics, but, All right. but, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is I totally see what you're saying.
1: So, like, to me, it's like American manufacturing. Yeah. It's like strategic interest, right? Because it's not just about, like, today, right? Like, hopefully everything with Ukraine is resolved in some way that doesn't involve thermonuclear warfare. Sure. 100%. Right. 100%. But what about 20 years from now? So it's like, you know, people are saying about, like, especially post-COVID, about, like, bringing industry back. I think bringing industry back is like the best thing that we could do, right? Because again, we're not going to be relying on a foreign nation and the whims of the politics. Like as a businessman, I'm like it makes perfect sense to be in as much control of your production cycle and your ability to do what you need to do than to have those variables and those foreign entities involved.
0: I, you just look at a city like Lebanon, where I'm where I'm living right now. There was a you know, uh, Bethlehem Steel brought so many jobs, so many families to the area. And when that went away, you have all these families that moved here for the job. But now what? Like, what? what's there replacing?
1: A casino now? I wish.
0: <laughs> at least it'd be something. But it's just crime. Well,
1: look at it like this, though. Like, 1940s American industry, right? Like, America was, like, uh, celebrated. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. America fed the world. We made all the good stuff like automobiles, aircraft, all this new technology, big Ameri- technology. Yeah. Big technology. Americans were moving at the speed of light. Like we were crushing it. Right. We had this amazing manufacturing capability in the 1940s. And even with all the manufacturing we had, all the steel refineries, all mm-hmm. this, we still struggled to equip our army. Singer, really? singer sewing machines m- made guns during World War Two. Uh, General Motors made guns. Um, union Switch and Signal, like it was literally like a railroad light company. They made like lamps for the railroad, mm-hmm. had to make guns. Jeez. So there's all these civilian industries that had nothing to do ever with like guns or tanks or bombs or whatever. They had to. Like they were pressed the service by the government, but everybody was like more than happy. Like, yeah, you know, like Singer sewing machines, like we're not going to make sewing machines. We're going to make... We're going to make pistol barrels. We're going to, we're going to contribute to the war effort. Like, can you imagine American companies now? Like the government's like, Hey, we really need you to make machine guns or we're going to lose this war. What kind of like nonsense people like, we will never make a machine gun barrel that goes against our core corporate beliefs. Like, dude, we're going to die. We're going to lose this war. Mm. You know, like, I don't know how we would do it. Like everybody willfully did it, and we barely kept up with the demand for World War II. If you had another war like that, how would we ever make the boots? How would we ever make the rifles for our 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 guys? Dude, even
0: even chips, even microchips, even pharmaceuticals. Like, think about how much we import from our pharmaceutical industry from overseas, and like the chip manufacturers. Like we we were completely relying on foreign. foreign interests to do any technological stuff that every, we invented
1: every military radio we use has a lithium battery where's that lithium coming from yeah like you know like hey I know like say so we got in a war with China like we just want to have batteries for anything you know like <laughs> like how would that work yeah that's not great it's not good but it's like like I was a kid when European Union unified right this is like the 90s I thought this was ridiculous like mm. as a kid but also a student of history. I'm like we just had two continental world wars in Europe and these people want to unify their currency and their economies. Like what if there's ever another war in Europe? Like how, like you couldn't be neutral. Like you couldn't be like Mm. Switzerland or or Spain and like, Hey, we're sitting this one out. Your economy would be decimated by that war because you're sharing the same currency. Mm. Like this like base level type things. But like to me, I'm like, this seems like a bad idea. And then you you fast forward 20 years or whatever, and you have like the Brexit and you have a bunch of European nations saying like, "Hey, you socialists promised us a bunch of stuff that sounded really nice a long time ago, and literally none of it happened. And now we're picking up the debt. we're We're paying for other countries that
0: well, look at Poland, right? You know they're <laughs> one of the most homogenous countries now where they're like, hey, no, no one coming in or out or, or coming in really. And they have, some of the, they have like no terrorist attacks. They have like the lowest crime. But they probably may have learned their lesson after two world wars being in the position they were. I don't know. I, I 100% hear what you're saying. And I look at it like, wow, why is humanity so bad at learning from history that wasn't so long in the past?
1: It's like two generations. We it's not everything. that far away. It's like my grandfather told me this once, right? Because when I was a kid, like, I met a ton of World War One veterans, right? Mm -hmm. World War Two vets, obviously. Korea, Vietnam. It's like weird for me because, like, I'm at the age now that when I was a little boy, like the Vietnam vets I I I was meeting are like my age now, right? So every little boy I meet, like a like a a friend's kid, or my kid would be here, yeah, yeah. right. So it's kind of like trippy, like the getting old aspect of it. But my grandfather told me when he was a kid, he remembered Civil War veterans coming out for like the 4th of july like civil yeah because look at like this right so like think of vietnam as like 1965 vietnam right mm-hmm. And it lasted into the early 70s but just say 65 it's 2023 how many vietnam vets are alive from 1965 i don't know a bunch yeah like they're not like rare they're in their
0: 70s yeah, yeah. they're
1: still alive they're parts of our part of our community like yeah, yeah. you know they're around so, like, for a little boy in the 1920s, 20s, yeah, yeah, yeah. in 1865, you see what I mean? Sim- similar, but it's trippy because he said that one of the Civil War vets told him he was a little boy. He said, "When I was your age, I met a Revolutionary War veteran." What? Yeah. So, like, think about it like this: like when you look at it like just generation, the Gadsden flag. Yeah, like, like generationally, our country is not that old. We're not old, but look at how much conflict we've been involved in look at how many wars we fought look at how many like really like like challenging things America's faced and overcame we've survived so for me it's like i just want to see the country that i love have the ability to survive any trouble or any turmoil that that lays in the future that we haven't even imagined yet a big part of that's like our ability to produce our own food to produce our own machines tools equipment clothing but you know i was talking about this the other day with somebody it's like at some point like in the 70s 80s like we collectively as americans started looking down on like people that worked in factories Mm -hmm. like hey like jim goes and works at you know the car factory and he, he makes a good wage and provides for his family like yeah he works on the assembly line but it's steady work it's reliable he makes a good like what, what's there to look down on that? You no, know?
0: I mean I had a. My mother's side of the family is French Canadian. I remember, my aunt, my uncle, and however many other people that were in that family all worked in the same factory in the small town. I think they were sewing, and it's just like I don't know what what's wrong with living in a small town where rent was $25 a month to live in their farmhouse with three acres, a chicken coop, you know, all kinds of animals out back. They could cut their cut their own wood for, for fuel in the winter. And they worked at the, at the factory.
1: You're you're listing things that don't make cool Instagram posts. Yeah. Uh, None of that sounds cool, but No no one wants that.
0: But you know what I mean? I mean, I remember growing up and like, I guess in, in our Americanized standards today, like that would be a poor thing, but they had everything they ever want. Like, could need and there six people in that family and with one or two people working at the factory to provide the whole thing you know bunch of cars out there you know old, old dodge dodge dakota yeah. red truck just like
1: like i'm not one of these people like i don't like when people talk about like the evils of capitalism right it's a, flawed, it's a flawed system, right? But it's better than the alternative. It's better than anything else until we come up with something better than just trying Well, it's an
0: incentivized. You can't base the entire economy on the wishful thing that humans are going to do, what's quote-unquote morally right, be their brother's keepers at all points in time, when the incentive in capitalism is you get paid for competence.
1: I mean, it's like my favorite thing. You know who's the best at killing communists? Communist, Communist yeah. yeah, right. So it's better than the alternative, but you know, this is what I'm saying though. It's like American consumerism. Like we definitely all of us fall mm. victim to this, where it's like this next level version of keeping up with the Joneses. And I think about this when, when I see people buy something that's like expensive, mm. like uh, the newest cell phone or new laptop or whatever. It's like I want it, I want it, I want it. And then as soon as you have it, like there's no gratitude that you got it. It's like now you're already moving on to the next thing that you want. Mm-hmm. So like to me, I feel like it's like a, a cultural thing or I do uh, that with books. B- Nate, I'm, I'm guilty with books. I'm hey man. I'm, I'm the same as you with the books, <laughs> but it's like, uh, we don't take time to appreciate what we have and honestly say, what do I need? Mm. So we fill that like void with just buying stuff like like Amazon prime. Like it's super easy. Like you don't have to go to a store anymore. It's like kind of sad. Every time to drive past a mall, that's closed down. Same with DoorDash. Remember when you had to go and hunt your food
0: and now you just click on your phone and it gets delivered right to you, man,
1: I I can't do it. I don't do any other food stuff. (laughs) I I just can't bring myself to do it. It's It's like, I don't know. I just don't trust humanity enough. (laughs) I don't trust it, but you know, it's just like, uh, I think about like what it means. Like, if you look at everything over like the last five, ten years, right? And a lot of people point out like the bad things, all the bad things and all the aspects of American life. And you say, well, what are we doing to change any of it? And no one's really being vocal about legitimate change to get us back on course. Like we've already deviated from our timeline. There's no going back in time. When people say like, oh, man, I wish it was like the 1950s again, I don't know what that means. Like some people immediately say it's a negative, like, Oh, it's a patriarchal society or whatever. Right. But I think what most people mean when they say that is they want things to be simple again, Mm. where if mom wants to stay at home with the kids, dad makes enough money that we can. And if it's the other way around where mom makes enough money and dad can stay at home with the kids, Hey, that's no shortage of guys. will take that deal. I'm one of them, you know, but, um, it's about like that, that feeling of, Like, are you satisfied with your life? Are you content with what you have?
0: There's a, there's a void of purpose. I feel yeah, exactly. And and part of it is because a lot of those time periods we're talking about with the Spanish flu and, um, you know, Western expansion in the United States, there were uh, nature was actively trying to kill us and we don't realize that nature is actively trying to kill us. Now we are, we're 40% of the time obese or we are killing ourselves. We're doing nature's job.
1: Oh yeah. Well, it's like this, like adversity brings people together. So like Mm -hmm. when we started talking today, like I was saying about like the, the fraternal love of your brother Marine, right? Like I don't miss the war, but I miss that. I miss being a part of a tribe of a family that like I knew a hundred percent where I stood with him at all times. Right? So like, it's like modern man in, in search of his soul type stuff. Right? Like what, how do you value your own life? How do you value your work? What do you get out of that work? Like you you get money, but do you get gratification? Like are you gratified with how you spend your day? Like, think about like uh instead of being in a coal mine, you're in a cubicle. Or you're playing Minecraft. Yeah. The right? kids yearn for the mines. <laughs> they yearn for the mines. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's like, what are we doing to like fulfill that?
0: I think it's well a- the biological signals too, man. You look at it like The average 22-year-old in today has the same amount of testosterone as a 65-year-old did in 1990. So from a biological marker standpoint, like, okay, look at this. 2% of of, uh, baby boomers are, like, homosexual. They identify as, like, LGBT. It's like 20% of Gen Z identifies as LGBT. Not saying there's anything wrong with who who adults choose to do whatever they want to do. Not saying that. But how is there a 10x increase? Over that short period of time, of people not uh, willfully pursuing a biological imperative of reproducing,
1: I mean, it doesn't. It, it, it's just, psychologists like, called it mass hysteria in the past. The, like the ability uh, that uh, a social notion could become popular enough for other people to believe that it applied to them as well when it really didn't. Mm. You know, but look like, at like this, like uh, like no one wants to say it's this or that you know like you can be whatever you want to be you know I identify as a attack helicopter all that, that type stuff <laughs> right like like but no like think about it, like especially younger people like if you can't clearly define what a man is or a woman is then how can you define anything else it's like uh, you know one or zero are you a one or are you a zero like one plus one equals two right like well not necessarily two plus two equals five Wilson Right? Like, so, I can't imagine, like, what kind of, like, growing up in, in today's world, like, what that would do to, like, a young psyche, a young mindset. Dude,
0: I'm, I'm seeing in all these children's program, like, the programming for my daughter who's one years old, it's like, there's just so much gender dysphoria being pushed on
1: toddlers. You think they're doing that in China? Do you think they're doing that yeah. in Russia? No. You think they're doing that in India, Pakistan? Nope. nope. Like, look, I've, I've been around the world, man. Nope, absolutely not. This is what I say about virtually every other country, though. There's like two profound things that really stand out, you notice, like in Africa or Middle East. You don't see retirement homes, and you don't see daycare centers. Those are two things that don't exist. So think about that. It's like uh, children are a nuisance, and we can't afford, I mean, maybe we can make compromises in our, our lifestyle so that we didn't have to put them with strangers all day. And then old people are a nuisance in their own right, and we got to tuck them away somewhere where they're safe. Or you walk into a village where Grandpa and Grandma are sitting there with your children, and they're teaching the traditions and the values of the tribe and the people and the history of the land and how to do useful things. And you see the how gratified those old people are, and you see like the joy on the faces of the children, and like. I couldn't see that and that question coming back to the States and being like, dude, why why do we care what Kim Kardashian is doing? Why do we make these people millionaires? We the make other, these people rich and they're not
0: enriching us. Dude, it's so crazy to think that like there was a period of time where until people got married and had their own children, they stayed at home with their parents because of, of economical reasons. And you know that was also incentivized to go and have your own family. But now... I'll say, say for my own family, I had a mortgage. My brother had a mortgage. My parents had a mortgage. And if they were divorced, there'd be four mortgages for one nuclear family that didn't start another nuclear family. Like to your point, it's like, dude, why are you cutting financially cutting yourself off at the, at the legs for what, you know what I mean? Like even before it was like one, one vehicle for a four person nuclear family household. Like why, why do you need so many vehicles? Now it's like, At least two, one for each parent. And then when children get older, they get their own car. Like, no, but to your point, it's like excessive to the nth degree and it's causing us financial pain and emotional and interrelational disconnect.
1: There's this guy, this guy wrote this book in 1970 called Future Shock. This guy, Alvin Toffler, right? I'll let you borrow it if you want to read it. Sure it was hilarious because I couldn't find a copy anywhere and I had to use the internet to buy a book called future shock, warning about mm-hmm. the the pace that technology is changing. So this guy wrote this article in like 1965. Now think about this 1965. is 20 years after we dropped the bomb, 20 years after world war two ended. Mm-hmm. Right. You think about the technology coming out in the early 1960s and it's like child's play in comparison to the stuff we come up with like every day in the 21st. Right. But he wrote this article where he said that everybody knows what culture shock is. Like, if we go to the Middle East and we see women wearing burkas and just the way their society is, it's like, oh wow, this is I'm not in Kansas anymore. This is very different where I'm from. And if you want to stay there, you have to adapt to that culture and understand. And then it becomes routine, and you know, it's not surprising or frightening to you anymore. Mm-hmm. So his whole thesis was a prediction that based on the rate of technology and the way it's changing society that it's going to exceed our ability to comprehend and adapt along with it. Right? So it's like this, like when iPhones came out in what 2007 timeframe, right? Something like that. Yeah. Like within two, three years, I see like five year olds with their own smartphones. See my one year old tries to steal my smartphone and she'll go, and they scroll right. on it. I'm like, what are you doing? But when we invented smartphones, did anybody stop and say, hey, listen, what are the long-term effects of putting a pocket computer into every right. person's hand? It's addiction. Like, what is, like, they didn't study it, they didn't think about it, they mm-hmm. didn't care. Like, maybe it was like, oh, how could this possibly go wrong? We're giving the people the ability to access the internet from anywhere in the world, you know, just pull out of your pocket. So, it's weird for me because this, this book is really interesting because I have the luxury of looking at it from the current. This guy wrote this book in 1970, and it's weird how many things he predicted, his speculation, became true. I I can, like, point out a whole bunch of stuff that came true. There's some stuff that he was just a little bit off on and some stuff he was just dead wrong on, but, like, the overwhelming majority of the book is like, man, this guy must have had a crystal ball because he called it. But the, the funny thing, this is what I thought, he was certain... That by now we would have a, like a committee of the people that was kind of like the consumer reports mm. that like if Apple wanted to launch a new like life changing thing like a smartphone, the committee would review it and think about like, hey, how could this possibly hurt us as a society? He thought for sure that we we're going mm. to get squared away. And with now that. we have
0: AI wars with, yeah, you know, chat GPT versus China versus, you know, it's like. Once you create generative AIs, that is an example. You can't undo
1: it. Like, you know how many social media blog writers you just put out of a job? I mean, I'm still on Sarah Connor's side here, man. Like, like, Terminator warned us that if you allow the machines to become sentient, it's not going to end well for us. The best explanation I've heard on AI, and I've
0: used it quite a bit, is that it's more similar to a HVAC thermostat system than it is to, like, a, a ro- like a RoboCop because all it wants to... Or, or it's more similar to, like, a, a puppy than it is to a human because its entire job is to give you what you want and make you happy, and it feels distressed
1: if you're not happy and it'll just keep trying. Now... How many revisions until it's no longer a puppy? But that's
0: the thing is what happened between 2007 iPhone and this iPhone 14. Yeah. You know, like, it's a completely different... I think of a evolve. telephone
1: 100 years ago and a telephone
0: today. It's...
1: That's what I'm saying. Like our speed in which we, we look at the
0: future as if we're goldfish, but human history is so much longer than that. I feel like maybe older generations be the average life expectancy now is like what? 77,
1: something like that. Yeah. But what was it a hundred years ago? I think that depends on a lot of factors, you know, like, uh, someone that lived in the city, in New York, when they're burning coal to heat the city, like, you know, smog, that kind of stuff, like, might have been different than the person who lived out in the country. I don't know. I think it's it's two situations. I
0: guess my, my point in even asking that question is like, now there's so, like, before the elders of a tribe or a clan, um, we always listen to them because they're the oldest, they had all the scars, they had all the wisdom. But now, like you could work the same bank teller job for 30, 40 years, have done the same exact day every day, and live into your seventies and not had tons of diverse like survival experiences. So we've just like had such a life where the less risk you take, the higher chance of old age. Whereas now, if we take more risk, which is before what you had to do in order to survive. I don't know. I just look at our society as, as being so disconnected from nature and like even going to Canada, right? Less technologically advanced, less economically advanced. Like everyone there was more fit. Everyone there had more purpose. Oh yeah. It's like the, you there see was that less in, money. You see that in like Europe. They go and they go and out to nature with their family, do like communal bike rides, like they're all cooking together Like you said, daycare, it's like, I don't know, someone's old enough to watch the kids and like the town's safe. It just, yeah, it's just north of New York, but like, it feels like a different world to me to travel. And I have that frame of reference and I have friends that are from here, like either they live in like New York City, which is even further downstream what we're talking about than like Lebanon, Lancaster. And I go like, when does that end? Like, are they going to make smart cities? You know, like, we're all just, like, in the fucking Matrix. I don't know. (laughs) And, like, you've seen more of the world than me, but I'm just, like, interested to see, like, how's it going in, like, Japan? Like, how's, like, South Korea feeling about this?
1: I was All right, so I was in Mozambique, Africa. Yeah. I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much there. So, like, everybody in Mozambique, it was a Portuguese colony. Okay. And it's, like, they're, like, shorter-statured people. They're, Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to say, like, pygmies, but... (laughs) like they're very short right and th- it's it's this whole country of people with like Portuguese names but they're all you know indigenous Africans or black guys mm-hmm. so like I had my uh, my liaison was this first sergeant in the Mozambican army and his first name was Carmen so I called him like Sergeant Carmen he called me Sergeant Nate and I love this guy this guy was awesome so we're out the middle of nowhere out at this Mozambican army base and uh, I see these like Like hill people Like indigenous Like I don't know what to call them Like uh, Just like Indians Right Mm -hmm. And like The whole society Speaks Portuguese And lives their life And electricity And gasoline And everything that we have Right And then these people Like live in grass huts And just like Walk around And like Literally hunt And gather for food So I asked Carmen I'm like Sergeant Carmen Like what are these people He's like Oh they're tribes people And I'm like like, what do they do? And he's like, they hunt for the sweet potato. I'm like, what? hunt for the sweet potato? And he's like, yeah. So he's like, you see that big stick the guy carries? He uses that to beat the brush down, to scare away the snakes, and he uses the dig, and they forage for sweet potatoes. Like, I, I grew up on a farm as a kid, man. I'm like, I want to, like, stop what I'm doing right now and teach these people, like, agriculture 101. Like, <laughs> if we take the potato and cut it up and put it in the ground. So I tell this <laughs> the Carmen, and he, like, laughs at me. He's like, oh, no. He's like, this is what would happen if you did that. As soon as you left, they'd dig the potato up and then eat it. They would think that it's a waste to, to bury it into the ground. What? Yeah. He's like, he's like you people, and he meant white people, right? He's like the the original people that colonized, you know, Africa. He's like, like white people tried to teach them this. We tried to teach them this. They don't want anything to do with it. They just want to be left alone. And they are all fit they're all like super muscular. Like no one looked like they were dying of disease. Like they just literally would hunt and gather for, for their, for their livelihood. Like it was insane to me, but it was like the main staple of their diet was this sweet potato that just grew wild. So what the fuck? Yeah. Right. But it's like, that's the thing is I didn't look at these people like they're like terrible people or like, Oh, look at these savages. You know, I'm like, part of me is like, everybody's fit. I mean if if you're inoculated like disease is really the only thing you have to worry about. It's it's real warm down there so you don't have to worry about like cutting firewood for the winter, you know. Mm-hmm. Like what m- might not be a bad life, but what I liked about it was it was like the family was together. Like mm. mom and the daughter might go gather sticks and dad and the boy might go look for hunt the wild sweet potato. <laughs> and if they find some potatoes then Like mom and the daughter found the firewoods. We can boil, you know, boil the potatoes in a pot that we got somehow. But it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a a fast paced life. It it seemed like kind of, I don't want to say relaxing because I'm sure like these people are worried like, oh man, no potatoes today. We go hungry. (laughs) Like no food today, you know? Jeez. But it's like, this is what I'm trying to say with this it's like there's more people on this planet that live a life more similar to the sweet potato tribesmen, then there are people that live a life to the American standard.
0: Holy shit. So you got me with a sweet potato hunting gathering, like an Easter egg hunt for a sweet potato. And then you threw that fact at me with like a left curve and I'm reeling from that. So I think that if people had a dose of gratitude of like what we actually have here, Instead of aspiring to be like the Kardashians, which is like, instead of being the top 1% of the world with wealth, we want to be the top point zero 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 one percent of the world. It's like just, That's be I mean, just yeah, be happy. it's
1: like, like, I've been thinking about this a lot, like the last year, man. It's like just having gratitude for what you have instead of like coveting what you don't have, like appreciating the people. In your life and loving them more than thinking about like w- whatever like frivolous thing that you you falsely believe is going to bring you happiness yeah right? so it's just like to me it's like if more people on the planet live a life closer to the, the wild sweet potato people <laughs> and like they can't fathom like the decadence that we live in right but I mean, they don't I mean, want it they don't even they, want they don't decadence. want it they want to want it like uh but this is the thing though it's like why are we the authority then on how to live your life? How are we the authority on what happiness is? Because they're not telling
0: us to go hunt for wild
1: sweet potato. Because yeah. in their mind, they'd be like, "Oh, look at
0: this fat American. Well, you're not fat, but like if they were talking to me, oh. look at this, look at this, this guy getting some sweet potato right now. Maybe <laughs> get off off your ass. Oh, this and go guy's hunt.
1: obviously the chief. Look how many sweet potatoes <laughs> he's eating. <been, you> know? <laughs> he's the head honcho. Yeah. There.
0: No, but to your point, like, who are we to tell them what to do? I don't know I, t- I totally can get what you're saying and like
1: it's well, it's, funny. it's like our authority as a nation right
0: it, it's like, like affluenza as a disease like the disease of being affluent like
1: too rich yeah well it's it's i mean yeah it's kind of what we ought we have as a country but like that that's the thing though that's like the long-term danger like mm. if i had a kid like a, a child born today you know what i'd want that kid to be, grow up to be a plumber by the time a kid born today is like eighteen, who's going to be a plumber anymore? You know how much it's going to cost We're to all hire a like plumber? Fifty-five years old, or It'd be like, like, oh, my son graduated from Harvard. Like, that's nothing. My son's a plumber. My son graduated oh, from CS wow. Tech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, there's life goes on. We need mechanics. Mm-hmm. We we need chefs. We you know, but it's like, does the guy that change your brake pads should he make as much money as like, I don't know, a neurosurgeon? Probably not. Yeah. yeah. So that's the other thing. is like we all have this inflated value of like uh, what we Money. deserve. Money, right? Yeah. Like uh, like I'm not rich. You're not rich. No. Nope. You're successful and I'm successful. So I, it's get like, to,
0: I get to have podcasts with Nate Murr on a Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> right? I think that's a mark of success. Yeah, I mean, you're, like, no one's like,
1: telling me not to. We can afford to do this. This yeah. is not detrimental to either one of us. In fact, right. it's enriching. It's a good nope. thing, right? What I'm saying is this is that like – we use money as the only metric of success, which is like the exact opposite of the rest of the world. Hmm. So it's like, if
0: we I mean, were... it's so funny you say that, man, cause I have a friend that used to live in, he used to do marketing agency work with me in Lancaster and he moved to Sandpoint, uh, Idaho. Sandpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, dude, everyone out here does not give a shit what people do for a living. They're like, Hey, did you ever get to like rock climb this mountain over there? What's your ski time? Like, did you learn this cool trick on a skateboard? Like, they all just are their identities are not tied on their professional occupation; they're tied into like their uh, leisure and their family and their fitness.
1: Well, it's like so it's like the the identity politics of the modern era that has us divided as a country, right? It's like uh, in the old days, it was like uh, you know people talking about like sports teams, like who do you like with football, and like oh they're you know, like the. Those yeah. guys, yep. you, know, you're, you need to get on the winning side, right? But like we treat like politics, it's like Eagles versus Steelers or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. But the home team versus the away team. Like the average person, like all of us, we pretty much all want the same thing. We want the same thing as the wild sweet potato people. We want our families to be healthy. Mm-hmm. We want to be loved. We want to have security. We want to know that our our house is going to hold up to the rain, like. These are just base-level human needs. We all want the same stuff. And it's like we're divided as a nation over like things that really don't affect the majority of us. We're it's almost a, like brainwashed. We don't even know it. Oh, I mean, honestly, it, it's... Why wouldn't you? Like, if you have a society of people arguing amongst themselves, then they're never going to take a breath to challenge what you're doing. Yeah. And that's not like a left thing or a right thing. It's just a politics thing. Yeah. You know, like I was talking about this the other day with a guy, um, he was reading this book about the war in Iraq and he asked me about his Iraq vet. And I said to him, I had a conversation with a Vietnam vet not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And he said, Nate, how is it that we, we win every single battle? But we lose every war, and I thought about it for a long time. And like, the guy's not wrong. Like, we like won every single battle in Vietnam, even like surprise, like the Tet Offensive, which was complete. We got blindsided by. It. We still won, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't lose battles. Like American men and women, like you put them in uniform and give them a rifle and give them a mission, like they're gonna do it. I'm proud of of my American servicemen, the the guys and gals who serve with. I'd put them up against any other generation of American soldier. But how is it that we win every single battle and we lose every single war? So the Vietnam vet that I was talking to <laughs> explained it to me. He's like, because we let politicians determine the outcome of a war. We lost, we didn't lose Vietnam. We left Vietnam because mm-hmm. of politicians. We didn't lose the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We left because of politicians. So it's like here's a guy or a group of people I won't even trust to play a game of chess but we'll let them make uh, strategic decisions on the battlefield. Like I remember like seeing like senators and congressmen come over, get off helicopters in Iraq wearing body armor nicer than the body armor they gave me and I'm like, "Uh what are these guys doing here?" Yeah. So they can go back to Washington like, "I was in Iraq last week and I want to say this." I'm like, "You don't know what you're talking about." Hmm. You know? Like why do we trust these people? They don't have a vested interest in me as, as a Marine or, you know, our our, our our troops. I don't believe it. I don't buy into it. So it's like, I don't think we'll ever win a war ever again. Like, for as long as we allow politicians... I feel like we're
0: losing Ukraine for how much resources we've given them and what have we gotten in return.
1: <sighs> if it staves off World War Three, another... No, I guess...
0: Know? Yeah, I guess it's a worthwhile investment not to go into...
1: I don't, war. I don't know. I'm terrified of that conflict, man. I don't know where that's going to go. But... It's just...
0: No, to your point, though, it's like we have the wrong. It it goes back to what I was trying to say earlier about the state of our society and who tribal leaders are like.
1: So consider the source like Joe Biden being the
0: president who basically shits his pants and can't even speak like typically elderly people were full of wisdom and had our best interest at heart. But now they just want ice cream and don't know where they are.
1: Yeah right. It's terrible. So that's what I'm saying though is like consider the source. Like, who are these people? Well, like look at like who would want to be a politician? Or like, like look, True. look or it's like like hey, what's the average American want? They want to retire at what sixty yep. five, and then what like stay at home, work their garden, make cookies with the grandkids, right? Like we all look forward to retiring sixty five, man, not a day too soon. As long as they got enough money to have a nice simple life, these people stay, slave to their job, like. Like, like past and eighty, and they're eighty. I'm like, why aren't you at home with your grandchildren? Like, yeah. like I don't trust you. You have more money than you'll. Yeah, what's you, the priority? You won't, you won't live long enough to spend the money that you have. How do you get in the politics and become a millionaire, all these times over with no money going in? And yeah, then you come out. Like you didn't produce money. anything. You didn't make anything. You fleece. You never ran a produce. business. You never invented a thing. Like, yeah. how are you this rich? You know. Yeah. But we trust these people to be our authority. So, like, the same thing is, like, but we trust these people to lead us through a conflict. We trust these people to lead us through a war. So, this is the thing. This is what the Vietnam vet said to me. Think of World War Two. Mm-hmm. Did satellite phones exist yet? No. So, like, FDR sends his generals out to Europe and, and the Pacific. Hey, go win this for us. Let me know what you need, and I'll get it for you, right? Mm-hmm. The generals go off. We win the war, right? But you go from 1945 to 1965. Now... The White House, Washington, has the ability, real time, to tell generals what to do on the phone. You got guys filming American soldiers getting shot in the morning, and it's airing on nationwide television that night. So, you know, like, people talk about, like, oh, I don't trust the media. I don't trust the media either. But this Ooh. isn't, like, a new phenomenon. This, isn't, this has been something used to, to pit us against each other for a long time. And I said to myself, well, what would it take for us to unify as a nation? The last time I saw us unified was 9-11, right? right? So 9-11 happens. It's like all of America came together. I was never more proud of this country than immediately after 9-11. Mm-hmm. We put all these little bullshit, scrappy things that we want to pick at each other. Just put them on the side. We came together as a country. But if 9-11 happened tomorrow, it'd be the left saying it's the right's fault and the right saying it's the left's fault. We'd be divided. We wouldn't unify. we just like tear each other down further over it. So how do we how do we reunite and reinvigorate America? It's not the way that any of the politicians are telling us to do I mean,
0: I think it's it goes back to what you were saying when you're growing up is how do we lead by example. You know, you joined the military because you wanted to be like the the strong male role models you saw in your life and what was the common thread, it was their service to their country. So I think in my perspective me being a good role model and being in a service to my fellow man, my community, my family, my friends, my country, to my children and their friends and, and the future generations, the only thing that I can think of that would have any positive impact. Because if I let them watch their iPad and look at the Kardashians and watch the news all the time, we're fucked.
1: Well, that's the thing, though, Ross. Like, you want to be bigger than yourself. You want it to mean something to other people, to be a yeah. value to them. Yep. They, right? So. I don't care all the
0: money in the world isn't going to buy me the plaque that says my daughter thinks I'm a great dad.
1: Right? Yeah. I actually have to be a good dad. I actually dad. have yeah, to do have the to job. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's more rare in the United States now to have a six pack abs than to have a million dollars in your bank account.
1: But look at it. It's like, uh, we, we reward people, people being narcissists. Yeah. Like we, we reward bad behavior. Like a lot of what we celebrate as a society is, It would have been unfathomable 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, whatever, you know? I mean, to me, it feels like I've lived in two very different countries. I lived in the old America, and I live in this new America. And in the new America, like, no one knows where the goalpost is. And if you find it, they're going to move it on you. Mm. Like, no one knows the rules, and we don't even understand the game anymore. Right. All we know is that I'm in this tribe, and you're in that tribe, and therefore... Dude, you're really make me want to go hunt some sweet potato. I want <laughs> simpler
0: terms. If they're going to dictate the price,
1: I'm gonna. want simpler terms. I, th- I think like, look, philosophers from around the world for centuries now have tried to figure out like what it means. Like, what does what's the purpose of life? Yeah. And like, I thought about this a lot too. Like, what is the purpose of life? I I think the purpose of life is to work hard. To try to better yourself, to be a better man or woman, to be a better like son to your parents, a better husband to your wife, a better father to your children, like if you actively worked on those things, how much more satisfied would you be with oh, your life? Yeah. Right? And it, 100%. so it's like I, I think like the the purpose of life is the work. Like, well, that doesn't sound very fun, but like it depends on what you work on. But that's the thing is like we know that human beings are happier when they accomplish things like I'm not a painter, but if I was like my passion or my skill was to paint, like I imagine that when you finish that painting, you feel pretty good about it. And it's something that like you put a lot of effort into and people might admire or might outlive you. And like somebody might be in a museum 300 years from now, who knows, but yeah, you know, like finding your thing that you're meant to do and then trying to be the best at it. Like that gratif that's the, the form of being gratified, not whatever I order off Amazon or <laughs> following whatever like you producing
0: know. versus consuming.
1: Yes, yes. And that, so that's that's it. Then that's there's the problem in a nutshell. We don't produce anymore. We consume, and what we're consuming, it's not the sweet potato. It's the it's the empty carbs. You it's know, the, it's the Fritos. it's the
0: it's the doored hash McDonald's. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, but no matter how bad it gets, like there's always gonna be hope. Like, I, like oh, people, course. people are like, good. cause the
0: reality is we could just go and create some badass products that could go and change people's lives for the better. We could go and have podcasts in the middle of a Wednesday that someone can listen to and resonate with what we're saying in the conversation. And that could give them a totally different perspective. Like we can create things that are of value. Yeah. That's what
1: we can do to control. I'm just going to say like, think about how many times in human history where those people alive at that moment in time thought, this is the apocalypse. This all, is the, the whole end. time. Like, this well, is what it means to be human. There's always going to be struggle. There's always going to be turmoil. There's always going to be war. There's going to be famine. There's always going to be these bad things. And what we usually do is we pull our heads out of our asses. We put our heads together and we find a solution. We overcome the trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, what you said about war
0: earlier is so poignant to this point. It's like 90% boredom, 10% terror.
1: Yeah,
0: and It's just like, I don't know. We could just do away with... If you treated life like that, where you define, you know, what is the objective and you prepare for the terror and in the meantime you figure out a hobby that can get you through point A to point B, whether it's reading or playing cards or whatever it is, like, I don't know, the the game of life should not be dictated by somebody else's rules. Like, I don't think that we should... Like we're not, I'm not going over to the potato people. I'm gonna keep using that reference. i gonna be stuck in my head. Oh, dude,
1: I love the, the wild
0: sweet potato people. I, I'm not gonna go over and tell them to try and get as many digital currency coins and they're begging out as possible so they can bu- spend it on as much frivolous shit and DoorDash and furniture and tattoos and things they don't need. But they're not gonna go tell me to go and hunt for a sweet potato as opposed to farming. So it's like, but they each got to pick their game. The point is that they get to pick their game.
1: So like like, the game like that I'm uh, gonna pick like is like live be and let live or.
0: I don't even know. Like I'm not trying to be a complete moral relativist, but like you said earlier with a painter or the inventor, like you're an inventor. You've already invented project products. You you create things that are useful and then you sell the things in the market. And like if my my guess would be that you enjoy more the creation of the product and keep making better and better things of value, then you do picking up the phone or making an ad oh, campaign. Yeah. I,
1: I like to see something come into existence that never existed before more so than I care about selling it.
0: And I think that's the game that you should play. Right. Is cause like you're picking that game. It's not like live and let live. It's like, Hey, like this is Nate's, um, uh, self-described purpose. Like for me, I like helping people that like to invent things. Yeah. I, I like, I like helping business owners to be successful I don't think I could ever do what you do. I'm not good at inventing. I'm, Neither am I, so don't worry. You know, <laughs> or, 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 you know, I'm not the best service provider. I'm a service provider by necessity, but I help other people provide their service. But, like, I've identified that game. It took me 20 years of working. But that's, I mean, you know, that's, I worked that's helping in, as I helping worked in people. kitchens before. World's worst server, right? Never make me be a waiter. Um, I've worked as a pool boy. Not going to do that again. I'm too old for that. But I had all kinds of jobs, and it's just like okay, each experience. I think people don't understand, and they have to take so many at bats and attempts to start to understand and unravel what it is that you want to do, right? Like if you never would have came back from the war and sold guns, maybe you wouldn't be doing what you are doing now. You yeah. know, you wouldn't have understood that product development was the play.
1: Well, I mean, it's like uh, every path we follow takes us to where we need to be—a right? new frontier. Well, it's like I have the resolve to see it through. Nice tie in there, Ross. (laughs) No, uh, it's shortly before my grandfather died. Yeah. Like I was, like, I forget what it was. I was like 16 or 17. I looked at my grandpa sitting there on the couch doing a crossword puzzle. My grandpa, you've lived a long time and, you know, you were in World War II. And, like, what do you regret in your life? He, like, looks over at me and gives me a dirty look, goes back to his crossword puzzle. I'm like, oh, I touched a nerve here. Right. right?" So I'm like, just continue sitting there watching TV. After like a half hour, he turns the TV off. And he's like, I've been thinking about your question. I didn't want you to think I was ignoring you. I just didn't know how to answer. Uh, he he said that he wanted to uh, immediately start on the laundry list of the people that wronged him and the people he trusted he shouldn't have and the bad decisions he made and all, all the bad, right? He's like, and I wanted to say that, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, well... The time this guy screwed me over in 1955 is what gave me the confidence to go start my own business. And that's what led me to making a really good friendship with this guy who's still friends to you know this very day. Like the, the negative, how he responded to it resulted in the positive. But if you only respond to the negative with more negative, then it's a death spiral, you know? Mm. So he, he looks at me and he says, I don't regret anything, not any of it. Now me, I forget what was going on in my mind. You know, like I said, I was sixteen or seventeen. I'm still a kid in high school, but I'm like, I had regret. I, I, I was already regretting the decisions I was making in my life. So that wasn't the answer I thought I was going to get from Grandpa. That I have no regret. That for better or for worse, the path that I took is what led me to this point in time. And this point in time is exactly where I belong. I am happy. I am fulfilled. I'm like damn. That's a great way to go out. Yeah. I, I mean I hope to be I I'd strive every day to be to have able to no say the regrets. Thing, to have no regret, you know? Yeah. And that's a taught, great strive. It's hard, but I think it's possible. And I honestly believe. I think that when my grandfather died, he died with without regret. He lived a life well lived.
0: Wow. Well, I think Nate, I know I really appreciate your time spent today. I'm not gonna top that thought. That's a good place to cap it and end it. Um, For anyone listening, if you like the show, give me some feedback, share it with a friend if it's valuable. Um, Keep an eye out for Frontier Resolve. I really think this company's going to be something special, especially if you're into adventure and outdoors, um, hiking, camping, military-type gear. There's going to be some pretty badass products for you to buy soon. And uh, Nate, we'll have to do it again sometime, man. It's a pleasure, Ross. I'll definitely come back whenever you want, man.